That was beautiful. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 3 and 4 today. Hopefully you've been studying up and reading ahead. Next week you can read 5 and 6. Okay, that'll be your homework. So we're doing a, a Nehemiah series, uh, Nehemiah the Determined Servant. And as we see is Nehemiah is a guy who's passionate about, about his God, a passionate man about uh, his heritage, about the city of God, Jerusalem, and uh, he is determined to do whatever God would call him to do. And uh, as we look, read this passage, as we read, read through this uh, whole book and do the series, um, my hope is that you and I would, would desire to be a determined servant as Nehemiah is, as he sets that example. Uh, and, and more than that, that, that we, would, we would look at our own lives and say, uh, how can I be a more determined servant in my family, uh, in my church family, and in my community where I live, and, and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth as God has called us to that. But before we can get to that place to, to decide I want to be a determined servant, a lot of people can decide to do things like that, but for you and I, as the family of God, as people who have believed in Jesus Christ, uh, there's a passion and a purpose behind our determination. Uh, for many of us, it may have been years and years ago, maybe as a child in a vacation Bible school uh, setting or a, maybe a Sunday school setting with your teacher, or maybe your grandma sat you down and, and shared with you all about Jesus, all about the hope there was and being forgiven of all your sins, that, that everything you did paled in comparison to what Jesus was offering through what he accomplished in his perfection, uh, spilled out for us on the cross, and, uh, and, and, and realized in the resurrection. You see, you and I as a church come here because we are united around Christ and what he's done. There's, there's none of us here that sit here on our own merit or ever can sit on our own merit. Now, I think there are people that are good people who try to come to be a part of a church or a family that, that are trying to work things out and, and, and to, to live a proper life, but ultimately they will not find any fruition there. They will find despair. Because we cannot measure up to God. And the, and the greatest news there ever was is that while we couldn't measure up to God, God came to us and did what we could not do. Through Jesus, we have hope, we have peace, we have life. Because we have his righteousness offered to us. And all we have to exhibit is our belief and faith in him. And from that, <clears throat> that's kind of a, a starting point for the believer. It's a starting point for those of us in the faith family, the faith family of Christ, that we would then determine to be a determined servant. <clears throat> and if we have the proper motivation, we can accomplish those things. If we don't have the proper motivation and passion, we will run out of steam. So today we're going to be looking at our, our continued series here on Nehemiah and uh, looking at the progress he made and, and, and how he made the progress he made uh, in three and four. Uh, and and as I talk about this, I want you to understand, I'm coming from the place where we all kind of make decisions or we want to, want to make our lives better or do something better. We make a determination and we start going, but sometimes we kind of get stuck. Sometimes the, the wheels are spinning and they're spinning and spinning and you can't go anywhere, right? It's like, what is happening? What do I have to do? And I think kind of taking in a look introspectively at ourselves uh, and letting scripture reveal truth to us would help us get unstuck and figure out how to move forward. Uh, there are certainly days of despair and discouragement around. Uh, there's certainly opposition all around us. And, and for you and I, we have to have that encouragement and, uh, and revitalization from the scriptures that will help get us unstuck. So that's what we're going to be, look, be looking at today. Uh, the, the Nehemiah, the determined servant, 
and the way he made progress, all right? So it should be in Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4, okay? And we're going to pray and we'll get started. Father, you are a great, great God. We are so grateful that we can be here today to worship you. And God, we, we're here because we couldn't measure up. No one in this room is perfect by any measure. Every one of us has fallen short. Every one of us has sinned, and every one of us is in deep, deep need of your son, Jesus. And we are thankful for what he accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection, that we might have life through the son. Today, as we worship, as we give, as we gather, God, I pray you would give us wisdom and discernment about your scriptures. God, our our hearts would be open to receive your message that you would challenge us and change us to look more and more like the sun. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so how did this determined servant make progress? He might have been stuck. What's happening now? We're going to build, right? Well, number one, it's in your notes. If you have it, it says uh, he he made progress by knowing that there was a place for everyone. Knowing that there was a place for everyone. Now, I mentioned this in a sermon uh, series in December that, that anyone could be included in Christ. That, that those who would believe could be included. And, and I'm not trying to say that everyone can come on in and everyone's welcome in the house of God. Everyone is welcome in the house of God. But not everyone's going to stand before God one day with Christ's righteousness forgiven them. Everyone can make that decision, but not everyone has made that decision. And when Nehemiah says everyone can be included, there's a place for everyone, he's not saying, hey, just, just put Joe Schmo anywhere you want. He's saying those who are passionate about the cause of Christ, those who are passionate about the cause of God in rebuilding Jerusalem, come front and center, and there's a place for you. Why? Because you're vested in this. Your heart and your soul and your emotions are in this. Those who don't really have that connection would would kind of just sit by and say, well, I'm kind of tired today. I'm not going to show up for work. But those who have a vested interest show up and they work, and in those people there is a place for everyone. The people responding to Nehemiah's call, if you look with me in your Bible uh, to chapter 2, just look up a couple verses from, from verse 1 of 3, uh, 1 of chapter 3. It's two eighteen. Nehemiah spurred everybody on. He says this, he's, I told them how, gra- how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. So he's relaying the story of, of what had happened between him and the king and, and that he, he told the king what God wanted him to say and the, and the king had been gracious to say, I'll send, sir, I'll send you, I'll send supplies, I'll send guards, uh, let's, let's get this going. Right, so he told them how, how uh, the hand of my God had been on me and, the ki- and what the king had said. They said, let's start rebuilding. And they were encouraged to do this great work. So you have a people that says, let's go, let's build, let's do something. And, and with that, then you have the, the time where you could kind of get stuck. And the wheels kind of say, okay, we're, we're going, but this, this problem arises or, or this creeps in. Now what do I do? Well, knowing there's a place for everyone was important. So let's, let's start rebuilding. In this chapter, chapter 3, uh, God uses all kinds of people. And they mention a few different ones. They mentioned rulers and they mentioned priests who God uses to rebuild. He mentions men and women, professional craftsmen, uh, unprofessional, and even people from outside the city. That It wasn't their home, but they had a vested interest because it was the cause of God. And it's much like, like today's church. There's a wide variety of people in this room. There's a wide variety of, of ages and intellects and skills and races that come together united 
under the banner of Christ. And we all have different gifts and abilities, and God has gifted us in different ways. See, God equips his saints with gifts and abilities so we might exalt and make much of the name of Christ. That's why he gives us those, that Christ would be seen and he would be lifted up. And so that the gospel, the message of the redemption in Jesus Christ, would be made known and move forward as we take our places and raise our hand and say, I'm going to serve as well. We become then part of the body of Christ. The body is just not an eye or it's just not a head. It's just not one body. It's an arm and a finger and a fingernail and an eyeball and an ear. All of us are different, right? I'm probably the toe. Maybe the, maybe the big toe, but I'm the toe, right? But we all have to use our own gifts and say, I'm in. We can't sit idly by and let others do the work of God when we are the people of God. And when we talk about there's a place for everyone, there's a few different uh, types of people he identifies here. Uh, we look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Elishab, the high priest, and his fellow priest began rebuilding the sheep gate. So the first kind of people we see are the spiritually mature, or the, the leaders. See, leaders are saying, yes, I'm in. The spiritually mature are saying, yes, I'm still here to serve. I'm not too good that I can't get my hands dirty. Right? Growing up around here and, and being mentored by Stan, and he, we set up tables, we changed diapers, we did what we need to do. We, we need to set an example, lead by example. The priests, the rulers were not above getting their hands dirty. Now, I, I want us to liken that to us today. Not, it's not just the pastor and everyone else. It's this, I'd say the spiritually mature. See, the spiritually mature should set that example. Now, some of us can be spiritually mature at a young age because you've grown up and you've known Christ for several years and, and you've studied and grown and been in his word and let it transform your heart. And some people can be babies and have been in Christ for like 50 years. Right? So it's not about age. It's about spiritual maturity. It's about being disciplined and discipled. It's about growing in the word and knowing the word more and more and letting that affect and, and be your source. And, and for those people who are spiritually mature, they should step out and lead in it by example and say, I'll be the first to get my hands dirty. You know, in, in America, one of the things that we are gifted with or blessed with is this thing called retirement. We work really hard, and if you get a job with, like, a government agency, right, or, or the Army or the military, you can maybe put in 20 years, and you can retire really young and have a nice pension. But the rest of us, we're looking, looking at 65, right? Well, okay, I hope I get to be 65 soon, and I can pull my Social Security, I can retire, I think it kind of bleeds into the church sometimes. We tend to think that, that there's a retirement date on our ministry. That, that I, yeah, I'm spiritually mature. Yes, I've, I put years and years into ministry. I put years and years into teaching Sunday school. I put years and years into, into being administrative in the office or whatever you might be doing. And now it's time for me to stop. It's time for me to retire. It's time for someone younger to take over. Let more energy come in. And that's not how it should be. You and I in ministry, in, in the family of God, don't graduate or retire from service. Our service may change, but we still set the example and get our hands dirty and raise our hands so that others that come behind us would see that example and they would follow suit. So there are people who set the example. The spiritually mature should do that. But there's another type of people we see in this text. Uh, we see that there are people that won't work. There are some people that just won't work. 
Look at verse 5. So beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. So these people that lived about 11 miles away said, hey, we're with you. We understand the importance of Jerusalem. We understand the cause. Uh, let's go. Let's fortify the city. And, and they went, maybe even with a blessing of their, of their nobles. Like, oh, yeah. You ever hear that before? Yeah, yeah, you guys go. Go, go make, yeah, help that group out. We'll stay here. But you go. We support you. But the nobles, and, uh, they weren't in it. And, and there's two reasons, I think, why, main reasons. There's a lot of reasons. But two main reasons why I think someone would do that. One is they aren't passionate about the cause, which means they probably don't have a relationship with God. They don't have the kind of relationship that says, I am called to lift you up at any chance I get, and when there's a need, I will say yes. I will go and do whatever I can do. The second reason is pride. Oh, that's, that's above me or below me. That's below me. I, I, I need to be doing other things, better things, more important things. Right? Or, or the whole reason that maybe, maybe the, the young guys should take over instead of the old guys. There are people that, that won't do the work. Now, for you and I, we need to, I want to be analyzing ourselves, you and I. Are we fitting in this category? In, in our families, in our church, and in our community. And if we are, we need to reprioritize what's important. We need to, first of all, find that passion and that zeal that we have for Jesus, the one who had all the passion necessary for us. And say, I'm going to give back. I'm going to serve and I'm going to love just, just because that's, that's about the overflow of my heart. And, and maybe it's taking away that pride and saying, yeah, I, I, need to, I need to serve. I need to continue to be spiritually mature. And I need to, I need to serve till the last breath that I have. I'm not going to let pride get in the way. We see one more group of people in this. <clears throat> there are the group of people that did more work than the others. Let's look at some scriptures here. Verse 11. We're really just jumping through chapter 3. We're not going to read it today. You've probably read it on your own or can read it at home. Chapter 11. Uh, Malchijah, he made repairs to another section as well as to the Tower of Ovens. Jump down to 19. Next to him, Ezer made repairs to another section opposite of the ascent to the armory uh, at the angle. Verse 21. Beside him, Merimoth, Uh, made repairs to another section from the door of Elisha's house uh, to the end of his house. Verse 24, after him, Benui uh, made repairs to another section from the house of Azari's uh, to the angle at the corner. Verse 27, said next to him, the Tekoites made repairs to another section from a point opposite the great tower that juts out as far as the wall of, of Ophel. And verse 30, so next to him, Hananiah made repairs to another section. Basically, there were these workers that were really good at what they did. Maybe they just had strong backs. Maybe they had a lot more people involved. But they worked. They worked. They were assigned a section. So please, just do that section. They were assigned that section, and they worked really, really hard on it, and then they got done. They said, what else can we do? Give me another one. Let's go. And they just jumped into another spot, and they, they did another section. They, they made repairs to another spot. You know those kind of people, right? You love those kind of people around you. And again, in America, and even, even in our, it's probably fine as a work ethic, right? You have an assignment given to you. You do the task. And it, it's great. At the end of the day, you can put your tools down and say, man, I, I finished my job. I can go home now. I can go relax. But there, there was a, a call to God's people to lift up God and to rebuild and repair. And, and when we have that, 
It's not enough just to do the minimum. We've got to do everything we can. And I want to be clear about something. This is not about the amount of work done. This is about the heart motivated in lifting up and exalting and making much of Christ. That's the motivation that we should have. It, it's very dangerous for you and I to compare ourselves to one another. You can do more work than I can. Or I can do more work than you. And Well, that just gets kind of messy, doesn't it? It doesn't make me feel very good about myself. And, and after all, what am I called to do? Am I called to do the same amount of work that you are? Or am I called to do what God calls me to do? I'm called to do what he calls me to do. And see, when our heart is motivated, it will never be enough to say that I did as much as they did. What we have to say from a heart motivated by the call of Christ is that I did everything that I could do. And that's what satisfies Jesus. That's what is credited to us as righteousness. Because that is an action based on faith. We're not trying to line ourselves up with somebody else. We're not trying to be as good as somebody else. We're not trying to pass somebody else. We are trying to be as faithful as we can be to the one who called us. I think there's two kind of areas we fall into, though, that, that are dangerous. One of those areas is doing just enough to get by. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what people did who wanted to look like they were added to the, to the fold. They did just enough to get by. These religious leaders were famous for that. They just check off all the boxes, and when they were done, their day was over. They didn't have to go above and beyond. We like to do just enough to get by. It's a fallacy, and it's pride that says, you're actually God, and it's, it's all about you instead of answering the call of God. But there's the other side of this, too, that, that we can become weary because we just couldn't do anymore. We just couldn't do anymore. My grandma was one of these people that fit into this. She, she was a Sunday school teacher at this church, kind of just thrust into that position, say, go teach Sunday school next week, and she did it for decades. And then as she got older, though, she started losing her hearing, she started losing her eyesight, she started aging, right? She, got, she died at 94 years old. So it, it, was, it was tough for her. But she kept comparing herself to herself, and she got weary that she couldn't do what she used to be able to do. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm going to still do everything I can do. And when I lay my head on the pillow, I know God's satisfied and, and I'm satisfied in what I've done. She didn't compare herself to somebody else. She compared herself to who she was 20 years before. And every time I'd go visit her, and she was at a place where she couldn't even come here because it was so hard to participate and hear and see, it, it, she couldn't get anything out of it. So she listened to the sermons on CDs at home. But I'd go visit her almost every day. And she'd, I'd get in there, she'd be talking on the phone with somebody and sharing the gospel. Right, talking about Jesus and talking about you know being forgiven. She'd be talking to her sister in Swedish because she's in Sweden <clears throat> about Jesus for the millionth time because she wanted her sister to know Jesus so much. She would cut out gospel tracts and she, when she'd go to town, we'd go for rides. She'd take them with us shopping and she'd leave them around different places just as God led. Right? She, she gave faithfully to this church until the day she died and, and her checkbook register was, was basically her family because she liked giving gifts to her family and all kinds of ministries both locally and abroad. Like she was so, so faithful to do everything she could. And time and time again, I had to remind her, I said, Grandma, you cannot be weary just because you can't do anymore. You should celebrate and be glad that you have done everything that you can do. That's what God is asking of us. That's what he wants us to do. Anyone familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis writings, the Chronicles of Narnia? Anyone? Read, you read the book, you watch the movie, okay? So in, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a little mouse 
the leader's name is? Reaper Cheap. Okay. So there's a scene where they're, they're, he, want, he wants to get to Aslan's country. He, Aslan is God, right? The lion. He wants to get to Aslan's country. It's just his passion. He wants to be with him. So he, he wants to, they're going to set sail and go. And, and it's just kind of like the group is like, I don't know if this is a good idea. Are you sure? Or, you know, what are we going to do? And here's what he said. And this, is, this should be our mentality as well. If we, if we know that there's a place for everyone, how should, we, how should our work ethic be? This is it. He says, my own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my, in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise, and Peepakeek will be the head of the talking mice in Narnia. He said, I'm going to give it every last ounce I have until I can't breathe anymore. For you and I, as the family of God, answering the call of God, there are no graduations. There are no retirements. We shall minister until the day that we die. We shall love until the day we die. We shall serve until the day we die. We shall give until the day we die. And then we will be with him forever. Amen? So powerful. Making progress going forward, we got to know there's a place for everyone. There's a part for everybody. There's a role for everybody to play. Number two. He was determined to make progress by knowing that opposition will rise. That's how he, he would make progress. He knew opposition would rise. So it wasn't a, 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 something far off for him. Let's look at ver- chapter 4 now. We're going to read all of chapter 4 together. Verses 1 through 3. We'll start there. When Sambalah heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues uh, and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they even finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up on, those, on what they were building, he would break their stone wall down. That sounds fun, huh? Sounds like great opposition. Opposition does come up. And, and the enemy was looking to make good on their threats. They had been, they had been threatening them and saying, no, don't be doing that. They're, they were mocking them at first. Now they're beginning to threaten. And we'll see later on in this chapter where they, they raise up an army. They bring, they bring an army to battle. And, then, and they came and their plan got frustrated because of what Nehemiah knew. But they were intent on thwarting the rebuilding and reconstruction of Jerusalem. See, when we are involved in God's work and the lifting up of Christ in his glory... The enemy is not going to be happy. Amen? You ever feel that? You ever have those days where it's like, God, I'm doing everything you wanted me to do. I, I, I thought you wanted me to do this. But I keep on having these, these, like these roadblocks, these people get into my face, and people are not happy with me. And see, sometimes we say, well, that must be a sign from God to stop doing what I'm doing. No, that's a sign from God that you're doing what's right because the enemy is mad. Satan doesn't want you to be where God wants you. So he'll try to thwart that any way he can. And those threats will come and that uncomfortableness will come up and we are right where God wants us to be. In order to make progress, we have to understand it's going to come. When you and I answer the call of God, God's enemy stands up and says no. And God's enemy will do what he can to take you out. But listen, he's not stronger. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
And Satan has already lost the war. Let's not let him win that battle. Anyone being faithful to what God has called them to can anticipate opposition and hardship. But this opposition should increase our dependence on the Lord. We should go back into community with the Lord and say, God, what is this truly? Strengthen me. Give me, give me what I need to be encouraged and strengthened. Christ tells us that we are going to suffer as his followers, as his disciples. Christ promises that. Suffering, though, is like it's the badge of discipleship. It says that you and I are good disciples, good followers who are taking up our cross. And when we take up our cross, we deny ourselves and we follow him, it authenticates the reality of our faith. It proves that our faith in Christ is authentic because we're suffering for Christ and lifting him up. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, he's about making progress, right? So number three, he knows that in order to make progress, he's got to pray through discouragement. I know I'm pretty sure this was a point in both the first and second sermon as well. And the third, and will probably be in everyone in the book of Nehemiah. Prayer is an important theme in the book of Nehemiah. So what we see is Nehemiah, again, hurries in to an audience, in the, into the audience of God. And he, and he hurries in there for some real, raw, honest conversation. And, and you probably read this. If you read this during this week, you're like, I'm confused. Can we really say that stuff to God? Well, we're going to read it and see what he said, okay? So let's look at chapter 4, verses 4 through 12. It says, listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin uh, be erased from your sight because they have provoked the builders. Nehemiah goes to God pretty upset. Nehemiah goes to God saying, God, these guys are in the way. They are mocking you. Just take them out. Can you just get a drone and take them out? Like, let them let him be not a nuisance anymore. Right, that, that's what God is wanting. That's what Nehemiah is wanting. He's wanting an honest conversation there. And, and we, we wonder, like, can we say that stuff to God? Well, and here's, here's part of the point of this. I think, I think Nehemiah was not sinful in asking this. I think Nehemiah understood the heart of these enemies. These enemies were power-hungry people surrounding Jerusalem from every side and wanting to thwart what God had called them to do. So if God had called Nehemiah to do something and these people said, don't do it, they are enemies of God. They're not friends of God. They're enemies, and they are at odds with God, and they are mocking God. They are insulting God, and that, that assault is an offense to God. What Nehemiah was saying, God, they stand condemned already. Let your judgment just do what it will, because you're an awesome and holy God, and they are far, far from you. They do not know you at all. But Nehemiah went into prayer, and, and he knew that they were sinful people. And he had confessed his own sins, but they knew that he knew that they were in opposition to God. He felt that God's honor was at stake. You ever had that in your life? Maybe your family? Someone who said they were a believer, someone who said they, they honored, wanted to honor and love Jesus, chose to do something, and, and he maybe even said it. Well, God told me to. No, he didn't. You're doing something so far off of what Scripture says you should be doing. God did not tell you to do that. And it just gets you upset. It gets you righteously indignant and angry. What did Nehemiah do when he was righteously indignant and angry? He went into an honest and open conversation with God in prayer. 
See, when we're angry, it's best to have open and honest discussion with God. A place where we can express our anger, our discouragement, our pain, it's best expressed in that holy place. Rather than holding on to bitterness and rage and resentment toward another person. Because that will do you no good. If you, you think God doesn't like your anger, you know what? He can handle it. He's God. Don't let anger ruin you. Go to prayer when you're discouraged. And he prayed through discouragement. Prayer is a major theme in Nehemiah. And Nehemiah knows it is not going to conveniently take away his enemies. Prayer will not do that. It will not conveniently take away life's problems. But it is a way that God provides for us to cope with them. Amen? Number four. You want to make progress? You have to understand that unity is essential. Unity is essential. I know I didn't read the rest of that. We're going to go jump down to 13. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people. So he's, he's getting up. He's give, getting ready to have a pep talk, right? Everyone's discouraged. The enemy's coming upon them. They're gonna, they, have a, they have this army here. Like, well, what's going to happen? Should we give up? And, and even earlier, in, uh, there, were, there were the Jews that were uh, kind of among themselves, the people that, that believed. They're like, you know, we're going to attack too much. We should just kind of stop. We should, we should just stop. We, this is not worth it. So there, there were people from the outside saying stop, and there were people from the inside saying stop. Right? A normal person would be like, I should stop. But that's not what God called them to do. God said go. And sometimes, sometimes, people in our own midst may tell you or give you unwise counsel. Counsel the enemy has sent them to give you and they don't know it. You and I have to test everything against what God has called and against wise, wise counsel, not unwise counsel. Going on. He said, after I, uh, after I made inspection in verse 14, uh, I stood up and said to the officials, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. See, unity has to separate who's in and who's out. The enemy was them, those folks, those people. And he says, he says remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen. So he's saying, remember what God has called us to? That's them this is us. This is we. We have a calling, a special calling. Ignore them. Forget about them. Don't pay no attention to them. And remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters and your wives and your homes. He sets up, it's, it's wonderful. He sets up families behind this different areas of, of the wall where it's low. So when they come around to attack that spot, they see a big crowd of, of soldiers there. And families know best, like, Okay, I know what you can do, and I know what you can do because you're my family. I know what you're good at, so we'll put you in the right spot. They can kind of delegate themselves and command themselves. And who better to put alongside of you to fight for? All of us, almost almost all of us, are so ready and willing to lay down our life for our family, right? I mean, you put me with Joe Schmo, I'm like, well, if it's him or me, it's going to be him, right? But if it's my son or daughter, you better get out of the way. 
I'm taking charge here. He's a smart guy, right? It goes on in verse 15. Uh, when our enemies realized that, uh, that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us turned to his own work on the wall. Every one of us, all of us, again, the unity here. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were re rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had, a, had his own sword strapped to his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Whenever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us, us there. Our God, our God, will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. So there's this unity. He says, unity is essential. If we want to make progress, we have to be united. We can't be divided. So I, I, I so believe it, that number one tool that Satan uses in God's people is division. If you want to stop the forward progress of the gospel, divide God's people. And they will be so caught up with bickering and, and so inwardly focused that it doesn't matter what's happening around us. It doesn't matter that people are dying and not, and not trusting Christ as Savior. What matters is our little internal feud. Nehemiah understood that unity was so important. So he gives them this pep talk and he rallies them and encourages them to remember the Lord. And, and see, how hard is that? Go back to even Moses in, in the Old Testament. Moses and the people, the Israelites that he led out of Egypt and into, back into the promised land, how quickly did they forget what God did? Day after day, it was like he, God would do something amazing on day one. And day two, they're like, is there really a God? Where is he? I don't sense that he's here. What? What, really? God just did that. But we are like that. We forget the power that God has had in our life and, and that good, strong hand of God that's been upon us. We forget all the time. We don't remember where he's been and how he's brought us. Just look at your own life. Look at your own faith journey. God has done something amazing in that. Now is not the time to forget that. Now is the time to remember our good God and the good hand of God. Remember how he worked, worked through your marriage or worked out your marriage, or worked out your relationship with your mom or your dad or siblings. Maybe how he healed somebody in your family. Remember what God has done, and remember that God saved you from you. That was a big miracle on its own, right? we got to remember the Lord. It seems crazy that we might forget, but we, but we will. We have to remember the Lord. We must keep in, in mind how God's story and our story intersected for his glory, that he would be revealed. We want to be united. We've got to stand up. We've got to dust our clothes off, say, I'm in. I'm back with it. Let's, let's rally together for the cause of Christ and the work of the gospel. And the, here's the greatest, greatest truth. Our unity, our unity frustrates the plans of the enemy. I love it. Let's get him really mad at us. All right? Let's be united in that. If we want to make progress, we have to stand united. Finally, number five. If you want to make, make progress, you have to expect to sacrifice. You have to expect to sacrifice. The call of Christ is a call to come and die. It is not a call to have a cushy life, folks. It is a call to come and die, and although you die, you will always live with him. Look at verses 21 to 23, the last part of this chapter. So we, con we continued the work 
So these armies are around. They're like, come on, we're going. We continued the work. While half the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside of Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. It's like, don't go home to sleep. You can sleep right there and guard. You sleep with one eye open or sleep with your eyes open. You can rest. But when you're, when you're resting, you're on guard. Don't leave. And then it said in verse 23, and, and I, my brothers, my men, and the guards with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon even while washing. Those guys had to smell, right? You talk about sacrifice. They had to smell. We don't, we don't like change. We don't like challenge, right? We don't like discomfort. We like to know what's ahead of us. We like to know what to expect around the corner. But denying ourselves, taking up our cross, means that our life is not our own anymore. Our life belongs to the one who gave his life for us. There are no breaks. There are no showers. You might have to carry a weapon. It might get dirty. It's, the call is there to sacrifice much. And if we're not sacrificing, we may not really be obeying. And if we're not sacrificing, we may stay stuck. And if we're not sacrificing, we are slowing or halting the forward progress of the gospel through our lives. And I don't want to be there. We should give. We should serve. And we should love until it hurts. Amen? All right, let's stand for prayer. Father, we are so grateful to be here today. We're so grateful to open the word of God and let it impart wisdom to our minds and to our hearts. God, I pray that we would embrace you with all of our heart, that our purpose and our passion would come from, from Christ crucified and risen, that, that from what he did on the cross and the righteousness he's given us, a righteousness that is not from us, but from the Son. I pray that that would motivate us to respond every day to be a determined servant of Christ. God, give us wisdom. Give us encouragement. Help us reshape our priorities so that every last ounce of strength and breath that we have would be given in servitude to you. We lay ourselves down so we can lift you up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.